Good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. Welcome, welcome. We're going to begin with prayer. If you would just bow your heads and close your eyes. And um, just invite you to take a deep breath of air into your lungs. Just breathe in deep and then breathe out slowly as we signal to our bodies that we're entering into sacred space and sacred time into this thing we call Sabbath, this, this day where we don't have to do anything. We just have to delight in the goodness of being alive in the world. 
So let's just stand together um, for a few moments in silence in the presence of God, breathing in and out God's spirit as we begin. Lord, we give you thanks for the day. It's good to just stand still and quiet, to listen to the sound of delight squealing from the mouths of babies and just to be reminded that we're made for this. We're made to delight in our lives, to just enjoy the goodness of our friendships, our work, our families, good food, good music friendships, things to chase, things to long for. You've made us um, so that we can respond to the world around us, but also that we can respond to you. And so we turn our eyes to you as we draw together today and come to church to try to see you, to catch a glimpse of you and of the world that you imagine. And so we ask you, God, to make that happen this morning. Come to us. Speak to us. Help us see the world the way you see it and ourselves too. So stay with us this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please join me this morning in our call to worship. God, your way is perfect. You are a shield for all who take refuge. You make our feet like the feet of a deer. You broaden the path beneath us so that our ankles do not turn. You are a firm foundation. Upon you we will not fail. I searched the world but it couldn't fill me and man's empty praise treasures the faith and never enough you came along and put 
The reading is from the book of Leviticus. If any person from among the populace unwittingly incurs guilt by doing any of the things which by the Lord's commandment ought not to be done and realizes guilt, or the sin of which one is guilty is made known, that person shall bring a female goat without blemish as an offering for the sin of which that one is guilty. The offerer shall lay a hand upon the head of the sin offering. The sin offering shall be slaughtered at the place of the burnt offering. 
The priest shall take with his finger some of its blood and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and all the rest of its blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar. The offerer shall remove all its fat, just as the fat is removed from the sacrifice of well-being, and the priest shall turn it into smoke on the altar for a pleasing odor to the Lord. The priest shall thus make expiation for that person who shall be forgiven. The word of the Lord. Please stand and continue worshiping with us. You unravel me with a melody. You surround me with a song of deliverance from my enemies until all my fears are gone. I'm no longer a slave to fear and I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear and I am a child of God and from my mother's womb you have chosen me love has called my name and I've been born again into a family your blood flows through my veins and i'm no longer a slave to fear and i am a child of god i'm no longer a slave
You can be seated. You can be seated. As we come to the prayers of the people, we will begin with a time of silent confession. We invite you to spend the next few moments in silence praying and confessing to God. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And we are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name, amen. God, we come before you today as your people, as those that have heard your call. We have been led into your truth, and for that we are grateful. We pray that you would care for your servants as we seek to live together in love. Where there is discord and disagreement among us, let your Holy Spirit minister to us to soften our hearts and turn our thoughts towards Christ and his his example to us. Empower us to hold fast in the conviction of your limitless grace, and power to reconcile and make all things new. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We lift up your creation in our prayers. Our world is truly a gift, and yet we often take it for granted. We pray that those who only see it as a source for exploitation and gain would have their plans thrown into chaos, and that pollution would become unprofitable. We know that we all contribute in small and large ways to our world's harm. So inspire in us the resolve to reverse our actions as soon as we are able. We pray today that all alive would see in their lifetime a source of clean water and sources of healthy food. We know that large-scale transformation is required to save many vulnerable populations from the ravages of heat, flooding, and ravaging storms and yet our governments and corporations drag their feet, holding on to destructive methods. Revive in us a call to stewardship and service. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God, we lift up your community. Bless the lives of those who are intertwined with our own. May our individual and collective witness as your people be a salve to the wounds of those hurting. Give us the courage to be the Good Samaritan for those in our lives, in our communities, and specifically in this community that have been victimized, stripped of dignity, and tossed aside by the whims of those with evil in their hearts. Strengthen in us our ability to hold fast to you as the wars of culture wage around us so that we might be a refuge for the refugee and a place of rest to the weary. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, we specifically pray today for the continued health of those who care for the sick, 
the infirm and the dying. Give aid and comfort to those that serve the rest of us in our time of need. When we are too weak to care for ourselves, we also pray today for those among us who are afflicted and in need of care. Specifically, we pray today for Mandy's father who was diagnosed with cancer. Be with him and his and Mandy's family as he receives care and treatment. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray all this today knowing that we are indebted to those who have gone before us in the faith and have carried your name on their lips. Give us the strength today to do the same for those that will come after us. And in all this, we give thanks in your name. Amen. Now's a good time also to remind you um, that since COVID has happened, we're giving our tithes and offerings online. You can do that at our website. In the upper right, right corner, you'll find the option to give. Uh, you may need to register, provide some banking information or card information, and you can give one time or recurring. Thank you. Would you stand with us?
morning. Now it's time for the blessing of our children. After we bless them, we'll dismiss them to their classes. And if you're new with us this morning, you're welcome to find a volunteer in the back with a red clipboard. Blake will be back there to help you find your way. And otherwise, you're welcome to help your kiddos find their classrooms after we bless them. So if you're with your children, would you put your arms around them and let's bless them together. Lord, we ask you to bless our children. We know that before they belong to us, they belong to you. And we are, in a sense, stewarding, helping them to steward their lives for your kingdom. As we send them out to be together and with their teachers, we ask that you would go with them, that as they read the scriptures, they wouldn't just see far off names and places, but that they would catch a glimpse of you and your great love for all of us. More than anything, we pray that they would never know a single day that they don't feel a part of the people of God. So we bless them and we ask you to bless them in Christ's name. And we pray, as we always do, that you would bind our hearts together as a church. Teach us to love each other and the world around us for your sake. Amen. Let's take a few minutes to greet those around us.
you want to find a seat, we're going to go ahead and get started. All right, well, good morning, everybody. Hello. Leviticus, baby. Woo! <laughs> we are working our way through Leviticus this summer. And I want to kind of reset the scene a little bit and get sort of a wide-angle view of what's happening in Leviticus um, this morning. Um, if you remember way back in Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth. Remember this language? And did so by speaking into the world these distinctions like light and dark and earth and sky and land and water and day and night and then filling those distinctions with life and from the beginning there were these two tensions within creation there was there's chaos symbolized by water and barrenness symbolized by desert and God created these beings called humans to manage those tensions to work on those things and, and make sure everything had a chance to flourish. And, and this story, the human story, begins in this garden called Eden where the, the first humans, Adam and Eve, walked with God in the cool of the day. And God talked with them and, and was teaching them what it means to be human and teaching them about life and the world and who God is and who they are. And in the garden were these two trees, right? The, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And God said, you can eat from the tree of life, not the knowledge of good and evil, which they immediately did. And in so doing, they began to reject God's vision for the world and deciding for themselves what makes for good and, and evil. And God's like, you can go your own way, just like Fleetwood Mac, and <laughs> you, can leave, you, know, you can leave the garden. But if you're going to organize things in the kind of a warped and twisted fashion, you can't expect me to bless it with, with the power that's symbolized by the tree of life. And so God expels him from the garden. So it just says, you've got to get out of here. And humanity kind of divorced itself from God. And this wide gulf began to appear between the world that God imagined for humanity and the world humans had made. And so the lives that they lived, the cultures they formed, did not reflect God's intention for the world. And this kind of just broke the world in every sense. They struggled with their relating to God, to themselves, each other, and even the very earth. And so empires emerged, like Egypt, where they, it wasn't just pyramids they made. The whole society was a pyramid with Pharaoh and the wealthy at the top and these Hebrew slaves at the bottom. Pharaoh making their lives miserable with hard labor, killing their firstborn sons to weaken them as a people. And so these people who had divorced themselves from God and gone their own way cried out in agony. And the Lord heard their cry and delivered the children of Israel through the Sea of Reeds, leading them out into the wilderness, the desert of Sinai, where they immediately started grumbling and complaining, right? They didn't like the manna, so God get them, got them quail. They didn't like the, the, the desert and begged to go back to Egypt. They got tired of waiting on Moses, so they made a golden calf to worship. I knew it was a train wreck. They were, they were not just wandering. They were flailing in the wilderness, 
And the reason is that this wide gulf still existed between the world that God imagined for them and the world that they had made. And, and so wandering there in the wilderness, they taught the world many important lessons, but one really important lesson, lesson from the outset, and that is that simply leaving Egypt didn't make them free. Imagination was still captive to this kind of warped and twisted view of the world, of life, what it means to be human, and who God is. And so God would need, need to lead them, not just out of Egypt, but into a life of true freedom. And, and to, to pull this off, God gave them what's called Torah. Torah um, means instruction, teaching, laws, practices. God gives them Torah to try to teach them how to be free as human beings, how to organize the world according to God's imagination, not theirs, which is more complicated than we might think because there, you know, there are a couple of big theories or kind of versions of human freedom that dominate the human imagination. One is freedom as in I can do whatever I want to do. Like if I'm unhindered by rules or limitations or pharaohs or whatever, then I'm free. The other is freedom as I can be who I'm actually meant to be. I can be human as human is intended. Like I'm, I'm free if I'm unhindered by my own brokenness or broken systems that keep me from being what I'm meant to be. And these are two very different pictures of human freedom that lead to very different ideas about how to order the world. It's like the example I always use is learn to play guitar. Anybody else play guitar? Anybody a guitar player? Okay, so if you play guitar, anyone who plays guitar can only play guitar because at some point, probably when you didn't have a girlfriend, you sat around <laughs> practicing guitar, dreaming about that it would help you get a girlfriend. Uh, that's not always the only reason, but if, if you can play guitar, you at some point spent hundreds, if not thousands of hours like making shapes with your fingers on the neck of the guitar, learning chords and strumming patterns, enduring the pain in your fingers, you know what I'm talking about, until you got calluses, building muscle memory, learning theory. And then after thousands of hours of practice, you are free to play guitar now. If you don't do the training, you are not free to play guitar. Genuine hu human freedom is more like learning to play guitar. Nobody's born this way, right? Um, it has to be learned. And the way it's learned within our tradition is, in part, Torah is teaching. And it's tough because, you know, freedom, as in I can do whatever I want, means fewer rules and disciplines and limits on my actions. I don't have to conform to somebody else's ideas about life. And, and, and it's, you know, it's enjoyable. It's low cost up front. Freedom as I, I'm free to actually be what I'm meant to be means conforming to God's vision for my life in the world. It means learning habits and rhythms and practices that will shape and form me into a free human person. And the Torah teaches that genuine human freedom is this second kind of freedom. The, the problem, though, is, and there's always a problem, is that our world is so warped and twisted that we don't know how to do this. And so this requires Torah, instruction from God, and new practices about how to, you know, view life in the world, who God is and who we are. 
And in, in the book of Leviticus, right at the center of the Torah, the place where this instruction happens is the Mishkan. Say Mishkan. Mishkan. So that's the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. So it all takes place there. Why does it take place at the Mishkan? Well, the answer is everyone had one. Like every society, every, every army that ever traveled had, had a tent of meeting where they heard from their, their gods. And so God took this normal thing that everybody had, the Mishkan, the tent of meeting, and changed its meaning and its use as a way of instructing the people of God on what it means to be free and how to get there as a community. So Mishkan is kind of like a new Garden of Eden. It's like a, a microcosm of the world as God imagines. And of course, there's a problem here. We talked about this the last couple of weeks. The people couldn't approach the Mishkan because of God's presence. It was too overwhelming. And last week we learned when you approach the Mishkan, you have to take an offering or a korban. Say korban. That's, that's offering. It actually literally means you have to bring a bringing near thing and that will bring you near. And, and so as you, you approach with your bringing near thing, what you would see is two cherubim on, these, uh, on this um, curtain. And between you and the cherubim, an altar with a fire on it, kind of blocking your entrance into there. It's all symbolic. And it's, it comes right from the story of Adam and Eve and how they were, after they're ejected from the garden, when they come back to the gate, there's these two cherubim and a, and a fire, a, a flaming sword, keeping them out. Same, same story, right? Blocking their way back in. Why? Because humanity's imagination for how to organize the world and God's imagination for how to organize the world are drastically different. There's just this wide gulf between them. And yet... God still left humans in charge of the world. And they just did whatever seemed right in their own eyes because that's what they thought freedom was. And slowly their broken way of organizing things kind of started polluting everything. Like persons, our patterns of thinking, feeling, and acting. Communities are how we relate to another and structure our common life. And the cosmos itself, like creation, suffers from barrenness and chaos still. And part of what God is teaching at the Mishkan was that humanity's version of the world means, um, or their idea of what it means to be human is, is so distorted that God simply can't get on board with it. Like, can't give them full access to God's presence and power, like those cherubim who are guarding the way back into the garden. They can't have access, full access to God at the, at the Mishkan because if, if God becomes implicated in their broken systems and, and appears to, to endorse them, everybody's going to misunderstand who God is. They just make Yahweh, to, Yahweh just end up looking like all the other pagan gods. And so... If God lets, him, God lets him close in, gives him access to God's um, presence and power, it could be a catastrophe. They'll just, they'll get God completely wrong. They'll keep exploiting and abusing the world only now with God's power and blessing, or at least appearing to have God's power and blessing. So God's like, I, I, I won't help you disorder and ruin my creation. Right? I won't lend my power to your project. Your imaginations are just too captured by Egypt and empire. 
Let's build new Egypt if I empower you. So you're going to need a new imagination, a new teaching, Torah, a new way of being. So God leads them out to, to the wilderness. This is where Leviticus happens. It leads them away from Egypt and empires. And then God begins to draw distinctions, like filling them with, with teaching and practices. New Torah, teaching them to contend with chaos at the Sea of Reeds and barrenness out there in the desert. God's taking them back through this progression again. Okay, one more time. We're going to get this right. Let's just keep going. Relearn distinctions between life and death or good and evil. Instead of empire, God calls them to be a holy nation of priests. And when the people cry out in the desert, God hears the cry and draws near. God gives them Torah, these basic instructions for how to organize the world. And it always comes in kind of two movements, the Torah does. There's, there's a, a separation, this time where God says, these things are distinct, there's distinctions made. Things that make for life and things that make for death. The world that you guys imagine, the world that God ima- imagines. There's distinctions. And then the second move is reconciliation, that God brings them back together. Life and death, sacred and profane, clean and unclean. Here at the Mishkan, these these, you know, unfree, captive imagination refugees are, are learning to hold those distinctions together in tension. Humanity's version of the world and God's intention. Confessing the, the difference between the two. At the Mishkan, God teaches them to just stand in the tension between those two visions of the world and to somehow make the word is atonement. It's, it's a Franken word. It's at-one-ment, mashed up together. That's, and that's what it means. It's, it's to reconcile them. And this is part of what it means to be human. To be human is to be able to make the, dis, the, the distinction between what makes for life and what makes for death, or heaven and earth, or eternity and time, or holy and unholy, clean, unclean, sacred, profane, all those things. But then to reconcile those two as God's image-bearing creatures. That's, that's the role for the people of God. So to be human as God intended is not to become magically sinless, right? I don't trust anybody who claims that sort of thing, like untouched by the brokenness of the world, but rather it is to know the, the distinction between God's holiness and the brokenness of the world and then to carry that before God, that brokenness confessing it. That's, that's what it means to be human. To learn to make the distinction between things that make for life and things that make for death, between the world God imagines and the world that we have made, and then to hold those things together, acting as God's agents in the world, the hands and feet of God in the world, bringing those things together, allowing then God's presence and, and power to come into fellowship with normal, mundane, common everyday, broken things through us, through our lives as God's agents in the world. Remember, Leviticus, we said this from the start, it's about normal, common, everyday things. God's looking for ordinary people who will come under God's way of governing the world and do the work of figuring out how to be free, how to be human, as human as intended, see the world as God sees it. And, and flourish in the world as ourselves. That's the key, as ourselves. And then to extend that way of being to the rest of creation. This is how, this is how we pursue peace.
Now, here, here's a twist, and, and the reason for this kind of long reset. The Mishkan and all the rituals and practices that will happen here, these are all Torah, right? They're teaching. They're teaching about life and the world and who God is and what it means to be human. And a big part of what all these ancient rituals and practices teach us is that the life God imagines for us and for the world is so drastically different from the world we made for ourselves um, with, you know, it's Egypt's and Babylon's, with empires and armies, with brokenness and violence and systemic sin and injustice, um, personal loneliness, anxiety, sadness and sorrow, self-destructive practices, selfishness and anger. I mean, that's the life that we've made for ourselves. And it so dominates the human imagination, so defines us and shapes us as persons and societies, and is at the same time so different from the world that God imagines. That the only way to get from the life we've made to the life God imagines is to surrender our old life through death. That's what it teaches. Much of what we think of or call life and chase as the giver of life has to die in order to make room for this new way of being to take hold in our lives. And here at the Mishkan, God will essentially teach them this reality through the cultural practice of animal sacrifice. Only God's going to mess with this meaning through these rituals so that they can come to this new understanding of of um, their own symbolic death and, and rebirth as new beings. I want to talk through one of the sacrifices and see if we can explore this a little bit. It's from Leviticus 4. We heard it read a little bit earlier. This is something called the hatat. It's a sin offering. It was done for purification. Anytime you figure out, oops, I blew it. I, like, I did something wrong. I should go deal with this. We'll, we'll cover it in more detail next week. Today I want to just look at the big movements or elements of a sacrifice. Um, so this happens when somebody realizes they blew it, they violate some law or custom, and it says that person shall bring a female goat without blemish as an offering for the sin of which that one is guilty. So it's a female goat this time, so a little more costly. And it will be killed as a korban, an offering. So first off, why are they killing, why are they killing animals? Like why even do this in... in the first place. Why kill an animal for something I did? This is weird, right? And seems very foreign and arcane to us. And it is. I mean, this is 3,500 years ago, right? This is a normal way of doing things back then. In fact, there's this rabbi, Baruch Levine. He explains it this way. He says, all religions of biblical time were based on sacrificial worship, animal sacrifice. And the Israelites could not conceive of religion without it. That's important to note. That's why the animal stuff is there. So in a general sense, the, the reason for animal sacrifices is that that's what they did in, in their world in those days. We come to church, we sing songs, we pray prayers. They killed animals. That's just what they did. But what happens there at the Mishkan is God takes this practice and just, just makes them do it in very peculiar ways that alter its meaning. And this becomes Torah teaching them about life and the world what it means to be human and who God is. 
And so, do something wrong, bring a female goat, and it says one without blemish, or the Hebrew word is tamim, say tamim. So tamim, that was lackluster. Tamim, tamim? Yeah, so tamim is a big, this is a huge word, you gotta know. So this word describes a goat that is sort of everything a goat should be, right? (laughs) It's tamim, it's just authentically a goat. It's not trying to be a sheep or act like a dog or a cat. And it's an exemplar of what a healthy goat um, should, it's just sheer goatness, right? Just right there. And it's flourishing in the world as a goat, just as only a goat can flourish. It's tamim, it's blameless, living in the world as itself and flourishing. Now, unlike this goat, I am not tamim. I am not human as human is meant to be. And if you know me very well, you know this to be true. I bear many scars and wounds. And I'm an artist, which means I'm always depressed. And I, I walk with a limp. I've been warped and twisted by things I've done and things that have been done to me in this world. This goat does not have these kind of people problems. This goat is just tamim. It's just like, here I am goading. Like, if you don't like it, I don't want to tell you. I'm just a goat. That's, it's tamim, right? And only tamim things, it says, can come near the holy place in this Mishkan, where all this power resides. So one of the Psalms, Psalm 15 says, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent, who may live on your holy mountain, the one whose walk is blameless. That word's tamim. Same as in our passion. So, so it's, and it goes on to say, like, you take bribes, if you lend money with interest, if you don't tell the truth, don't do justice, you can't come in, right? Only Tamim things get inside this tent, but that's not me. Nor was it the Hebrew people in Sinai. But God allowed them to use a substitute that was Tamim, this animal. That's kind of the logic of it. And so they bring the Tamim animal to the Mishkan, and it says, the offerer shall lay a hand upon the head of the sin offering. The word uh, for laying hand on the head there is Samak. Say Samak. So, so Samak means to come up to the animal and you press down hard, like almost leaning on the head of the animal, which clearly had some symbolic meaning. The problem is nowhere in the scripture do they tell us what the symbolic meaning of this action is, right? Um, God has them Samak, this Tamim animal. And there are many possible interpretations. One is people say, well, it could be just claiming ownership. But they sort of already declared ownership when they walked it through the gates, right? So that seems unlikely. Some people see this laying on the hands, this, this Samak, as a transfer of guilt to that animal. Lots, if you grew up evangelical Christian, you heard this all the time. But there's some obvious problems with that interpretation. For one thing, Samach is used in a bunch of other offerings that have nothing to do with sin and guilt. They still Samach the animal, press their hand on the head. That's one strike against this idea that you're imputing your guilt to an animal. Also, Samach is used in the appointing of successors for priests and prophets. So like when Moses um, passes the torch to Joshua at the Boundary Waters, he, he puts his hand, he presses on his head, he some mocks Joshua, right? 
This has nothing to do with transferring guilt here between Moses and Joshua. That's, that's another strike against this. Now, Samach is used on the Day of Atonement, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. Um, the priest presses two hands on the head of the goat while confessing the sins of the Israelite people. And this is the scapegoat. That's where that terminology comes from. A scapegoat, which does sim- become a symbol of I- Israel's sin. However, that goat is not killed in their rituals. That goat is exiled, sent out into the wilderness, far away from the Mishkan, far away from all this power. Because you can't take a symbol of sin into the Mishkan. It violates the whole reason for this teaching about Tamim, about blamelessly. Only Tamim thinks can go in there. So, so it, it goes out in exile. And there's a second goat then that they do the Samak with. And that one is, is Tamim, is blameless. That one can go in. Um, but it is not a symbol of sin. So that's kind of strike three against that idea that laying on hand like imputes our guilt or sin to this. Plus, that's not the typical Jewish reading. That's, that's strike four, if you get four strikes. Um, so I don't put much stock in that. The last option, kind of the normal Jewish interpretation, is that this is a, the making of a symbolic substitute. And this kind of matches what they do with a guilt offering and when they're like um, laying hands on their successor. It's, it's like, Samak is like saying, this animal is now me. It represents me. I can't go in there because I'm not Tamim. This animal is Tamim, so I appoint it to represent me in the tent before God. That's most likely what this thing means. It's just a symbol of saying, okay, symbolically, this animal is, is me now. And so then after the smock, the, it says, the sin offering shall be slaughtered at the place of the burnt offering. The word slaughtered is shagat. Say shagat. Actually, you're supposed to say shagat. But don't anybody like hawking something up on their neighbor, COVID. So we'll just say shagat, right? So it, it's a very matter-of-fact word. just means cut the throat of the animal. It's not ambiguous, right? It's cut his throat. Okay, now think about this. We brought this animal, this tummy, it's blameless, and we've said, this animal is now me, and then we kill it. We kill the animal. We have just said it's now me. And that's, that's the key to understanding the, the death of the animal. It's this ritual self-sacrifice. So they're, they're doing animal sacrifice. This is like all of the religions of the world, but this has a dramatically different Meaning that stems from the idea that to come alive in God's new world, one has to be willing to die to their old way of being, to surrender their old way of life that is bondage so that they can become free, right? But freedom's no good if you're dead, right? And so God allows this substitute, this tamim animal. Now I want to be really clear because the way the sacrifice is performed, it is not saying that the goat takes on the guilt of the person, takes on the sin, and then goes into the tent and receives the punishment we were supposed to get. It's not what's going on through this. The, the goat is tamim. It's blameless. That's the whole you know, gate that lets it go in. It goes in where I can't. 
part of how we know this is what happens next, the, the other element of, this, uh, of the sacrifice, which is they slaughter the animal, and then they drain the blood, which is really gross. Sorry if blood is a thing for you. Um, but they, they drain the blood and collect it in a bowl because blood in the ancient world represents life. Even after it dies, the animal dies, that blood is still alive and powerful. And, and then they begin to do things around the tent with, with the blood. They'll dip their finger in it and sprinkle it here. They'll pour some of it there. There are all these symbolic things. And sometimes they even carry it into the holy place in, inside the Mishkan. Guilty things can't go anywhere near the Mishkan. But they take the blood in there and sprinkle it on the curtain or on the horns of the incense altar. They would only do this with an animal that's tamim, with blood that is blameless. So, so that life goes into the tent and, and it kind of acts as a detergent almost. It's making things clean. So we, we cannot say that we're giving our, putting our guilt on this goat and then killing it. It's taking my place. All we can say is this goat is blameless. Tommy, it is my representative and it dies. Why? For Torah, for teaching, to teach me about my own need to surrender my life as I know it in order to experience this different kind of life. Um, and it's really not fair, and the goat was just goating, you know, being a goat. But this ritual is it's, it's meant to be seen, it's hard to see it in our day, but back then it would have been seen as an act of grace. God lets this animal represent me in this ritual that teaches me. This happens so I can learn more about what it means to be human and not only learn, but start in the acting it out to, to relinquish an old way of being and come alive to a new one, one that leads to freedom. And through all of this, it, it lets me inch up closer and closer to that tent where the presence of God is. We get closer. And the twist is, uh, and kind of the the end of all this ancient ritual symbolism is that the very meaning of death is transformed. It's not just this line between life and whatever is after life or, or between things that make for life and things that make for, for death. What's revealed is that death itself is this, this boundary um, between the world God imagines for us and the world that we have made. And the only way to get from the world that we have made to the world that God imagines for us is to cross through death on our way, like the Red Sea, going through the Red Sea on the way to new life. That's the only way to draw near to God's presence is through this surrender of the life we've made and are counting on, but is really just bondage to Egypt. We have to just surrender it, die to it somehow. And the way that God does this is offers a tamim, a blameless substitute that we can samak, press our hand on and say, this is me. And then we kill it. It's this ritual self-sacrifice, a symbolic death. The Christian analog to this obviously is baptism, right? That's what we do instead. We don't kill animals anymore. Christians do baptism. Same meaning, really this death to an old way of life and this rising again to a new way of life. That's the symbol. Or you can say that all our former allegiances go down under the water 
everything we've pledged allegiance to ever, like a flag, goes under the water, and it doesn't come back up, at least not in the same way. The only allegiance that comes back up for the Christians is this simple confession, Jesus is Lord. I'm trying to pursue the world God imagines in the way of Christ. And he said, how to do this? Take up your cross. Self-sacrifice, right? Follow this one who said, the only way to find your life is to lose it. You want to know love? Lay down your life for a friend. I mean, all his teaching is just doing the same symbolic move. They made it the Mishkan. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans 2, and he wrote, I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship, and do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve the difference between good and evil, essentially, what God's will is. This is... This is just telling us here at the Mishkan, this is the nature of the whole thing. That, and it will carry through Christ's ministry, through the early church. Death is, has been revealed as the boundary between the world that we have made and the life that God is trying to get us to live, which is freedom. Not freedom from any... Um, prohibitions or strictures, freedom to actually play guitar, you know, to actually be human as human is intended to be. Um, we're going to conclude with a little exercise. You should have received a little note card and a golf pencil when you came in. If you want to grab that um, and have it ready. While you're doing that, let me, if you didn't get one, um, there's, yeah, there's folks here who can help you out, just wave your hand and they'll get you a pencil and a piece of paper. While you're, while you're doing that, let me say, if you have never been baptized, if that's just not something you've done, never taken part in this kind of ritual, symbolic death and rebirth, next week is our baptism at Redemption Church. If you have been baptized, make sure you get it on your calendars and come join us 10 a.m. over at, at Olathe Lake. Um, but if, you're, if you've never been baptized and you want to be or are thinking about it, we're having a meeting right after service. Just gather, gather right up here after service and um, you can come ask questions. We can talk about it. Okay, everybody got a note card? Everybody got one? There's some over here. Okay. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to engage in an ancient Christian practice. So we're trying to learn some of the, the movements of the faith. Roman Catholics do at least a part of this. Um, every time they enter their, the sanctuary, if you, if you go to church there, there's a font and you dip your, your fingers in the water and make the sign of the cross over here. This is basically a way of remembering your own baptism. That's, that's the whole symbolism of this deal. We're going to do a similar thing. But first, what I want you to do with this paper is think about one or two things that represent that, that gap, that boundary Things that represent that, the way of life you learned within our culture. Humanity's imagination for how to organize the world. Just something that, that is how you're taught to do things, but it, you know you have this sense that it's kind of killing you. And if you want to get on to what's next in life, you're going to have to let it die. You know what I'm talking about? So 
There's this gulf between our imagination, what we were taught, and how we've been shaped in the world, and this whole other idea of what it means to be free. So think about something that symbolizes, like an attitude, an action, a desire, a practice, that stems not from the world God imagines, but from the world we've created. And it trips you up. It brings death to things that you care about. It causes you pain or the people you love pain. And you, you know you're going to need to let this go, surrender it, let it die. So I want you just to think of that and write, write that word on the paper. What is it? You can make it cryptic if you want. What is, what is something that just needs to die if you're ever going to be free? In the way you relate to God and self, each other in the world. Maybe you got two or three. If you're filling up the whole page, you need to come talk to me. (laughs) And I'll show you mine, which is full, right? Just write down something there, and then fold it up a couple times. And this is what we're going to do. After we receive communion, so we all will come forward to receive communion, what I want you to do is bring that paper up here to to the altar, and there are these two... um, two glass bowls that I stole from home and Kristen didn't know I had them until she came here this morning. Um, take your piece of paper and just dip it down. Just get it completely wet and kind of push it toward the bottom. It'll get wet and it'll, it'll sink down in there. But let, make sure your, your fingers touch the water. And then after it touch, touches the water, do that practice of just crossing yourself, remembering your baptism. It's this way of saying, you know, let Christ be over my body, defining me. Let God's way define me. That's what we're going to do. So just write something on the paper that represents, you know, a way of life that needs to die. And then when you come up for communion, receive communion first, and then come up and come to these bowls and just plunge it down in the water and leave it there. Just let it drown in the waters of baptism. That's really what that signifies. And then as your fingers touch the water, make the sign of the cross just to remember your own baptism. Are you game? All right, let's stand. And we're going to receive communion. The reason we do this is that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and passed it to his his followers and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way after supper, he took a cup, and this one common cup, and they just passed it around, they all shared a drink of the cup, and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, my life, right? It's a new deal between humanity and God in my blood, not the blood of this, this Tamim animal, but a Tamim person. And he said, whenever you get together, eat this bread, drink this cup. In, in essence, take my life into your life. Become made out of the stuff I'm made out of. And then go out into the world and be my hands and feet, my agents holding together the tensions of the world. That's, that's the symbolism of this. And um, so this is why we do this every week, and this is why we invite anybody who is a struggler and calls on the name of Christ to join us at the table. Um, So if you would, let's pray together and bless this food. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. 
And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?
today. Just a few things. Um, first of all, tonight is the second of the newcomers class. It's a two-part class, so tonight's the final session of it. But uh, I was told to be sure and tell you that if you didn't make the first one, please, you're welcome to come tonight if you'd like to. There is childcare available. It's at 5 p.m. and it'll be out here in the foyer. And then, um, as Tim mentioned a few minutes ago, next Sunday is our annual church baptism and picnic. And just, just for my information, raise your hand real quick if you plan to be there. I'm trying to get food ideas. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Okay, um, here's the deal. 10 o'clock, do not show up here. The doors will be locked. Nobody will be here. Go straight to... Um, Lake Olathe Beach for our baptism at 10 a.m. After that, we're going to head up the hill to the Beaver Shelter for lunch. Um, the church provides the fried chicken, the baked beans, and the watermelon, and, and bottled water, stuff like that. We need you, um, as a church picnic goes, to bring a side dish or a dessert to share. And then we just enjoy each other. If, uh, it's a great time to spend together and get to know each other, you guys. So please try to come if you can. Um, if you are planning to help me with the picnic, I'm going to have a short meeting in the office conference room right after this just to go over some last-minute planning details. So join me there. And then the last thing I have is two weeks from today on the 24th, um, Tim is going to do what we call, what is called, uh, is it a Hebrew word, midrash? Okay, we're doing a Leviticus midrash, which is like a deeper dive into Leviticus. If you've been with us the last few weeks since we've been doing Leviticus and you go home with questions in your mind and or confusion or whatever, this is the thing to show up for to get, be able to ask your questions and um, get a little bit deeper um, explanation. And so it'll be back here in this room at, on the 24th, um, taking a, just a quick break after service so you can go grab a bite to eat and then come back for the Leviticus Midrash two weeks on the 24th. And then Mandy has one more announcement. Hi, I'm Mandy. Hey, I wanted to let you know about uh, kind of a big undertaking that we do at Redemption Church is called Strengthening Families. And if that is sort of un an unfamiliar phrase to you, if you're new-ish, um, it's something we're starting in September, September 1st. It is a 12-week class that we put on for, uh, for lack of a better way to say this, sort of at-risk families. These families come to us from Department of Corrections. They come to us from foster care. Uh, so in many different ways, we have contact with families that are not members of our church necessarily, but they want to go through this class um, in an effort to sort of strengthen their own family. So I, I know that's it's a lot. It's kind of hard to nutshell in a, just an after-church announcement, but because of that, on uh, let's see, the first Sunday in August, which I believe is August 7th, I am going to have an informational meeting after church, so there's a lot of after church meetings, but the first Sunday in August, if there, that's something you'd like to learn more about because we need a lot of volunteers. As you can imagine, it takes an army of people to, to pull that off. We eat together, we facilitate classes, we prepare food, we work with kids. So that is the first Sunday in August. If you'd like to know more about that, uh, because we do need a lot of help. Thank you. All right, this is my yearly announcement because 
we've forgotten in the, this um, culture of death how to do potlucks. <laughs> and this is very important to me. Um, so a potluck is when you bring something you have made. It does not mean you go get Doritos and bring them to the picnic, even though I love Doritos. And I don't want you like Googling something day of. I want a recipe like from your grandma, something good that you have always made, and it will go in a dish like this, okay? That's potluck where, okay? It's my yearly announcement. Um, that, yeah, seriously, man, this is like bring something to share, take pride in it. It's, it's kind of a thing we do at Redemption, and the side dishes is, are amazing every, every single year. Um, anything else? Is that everything? I'm looking. I don't know where. We, we good? Okay, if you would stand and receive this benediction, I invite you to hold your hand, hands out in front of you with your palms up in this posture of receptivity. We draw to mind all this crazy ancient animal sacrifice stuff and symbolism and rituals and burning things and blood everywhere and all just the strangeness of it. And yet here we are with our palms up, our hands open, trying to remain open to this life that God wants for us, this way of being human as human was intended to be, and we long to be free to live that way. But it takes these open hands, it takes a willingness to surrender. It's really hard to do. So as you chase after that surrender, that self-sacrifice, may the Lord bless you and keep you, Redemption Church. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Go in peace, everyone.